We are back for our last complete week of episodes in 2023. We'll have an abbreviated schedule next week. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Laura Johnston, Layla Atassi, and Lisa Garvin. And Lisa, we begin with you and we begin with marijuana. It's a question many people are asking now that marijuana is completely legal in Ohio, but with no shops in Ohio yet that sell it, can people who want it drive to Michigan or other states and bring it home legally? Well, the new law is actually silent about that, bringing pot across state lines. But because Ohio's recreational marijuana law is similar to Michigan's with the same possession limit of two and a half ounces, it's pretty unlikely that local and state law enforcement officers will be camped on the border looking to, you know, bust people bringing it back from Michigan. The executive director of Ohio State University's Drug Enforcement Policy Center, Douglas Berman, says the feds are also unlikely to notice or care, even though it is still a federal crime to cross state lines with marijuana. But he says this is going to be mostly small-scale activity. It shouldn't be problematic at all. Issue 2 did state that one of its purposes is to limit out-of-state purchases of marijuana to keep the money in Ohio from going to Michigan and, and to the black market. And a bill passed in Senate last week calls for the immediate sale of recreational marijuana at medical dispensaries 90 days after the law takes effect if it's approved. DeWine says he doesn't want the black market to grow as the rules and regulations are written over the next nine months or so. Although when he was asked, he said he'd rather we didn't go to Michigan or illicit dealers for the marijuana. And the bill has yet to be taken up in the House. So we'll have to see what happens. I was surprised by this because the rules about alcohol are different. You're not allowed to take alcohol across state lines. Again, if you're going on vacation and you take some bottles of wine, it's not like the troopers are going to uh, sit by the border and arrest you. But the fact that this is so vague, the feds don't care. They're not going to pursue this. Mm -mm. So you're free to do it if you know, until Ohio makes it readily available, which the Senate is trying to do. Uh, I just was interested in the answer to this because I did not expect that's what it would be. Mm -hmm. So, you know, yeah, if you feel like you have to go to Michigan again and you can't wait, so you can do it, but just don't be speeding or doing anything else illegal. Or don't have, you know, if if you have a feeling that they're out to get you, don't give them the reason to be able to pull you over. Exactly. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The people suing First Energy over the big bribery scandal plan to depose Lieutenant Governor John Houston, who does come up a good bit in the evidence, although he has not been incriminated in any way. Layla Houston offered some remarks on the case late last week. Did he offer much clarity? Not a lot of clarity, Chris, besides him saying that he doesn't really remember much of specific conversations he was involved in that that have come up during the HB6 investigation and, and are likely to come up during future depositions. One of them was during a dinner at a restaurant in the Columbus area. Houston was there along with Governor Mike DeWine, and they were joined by First Energy CEO Chuck Jones, lobbyist Mike Dowling, and Sam Randazzo who has now been indicted for taking bribes from First Energy. But at the time, he was considering applying for the position with the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio. Houston told reporter Jake Zuckerman that he doesn't remember what they talked about during that conversation or if the topic of Randazzo's appointment came up. But later that night in a text message thread, Randazzo, Jones, and Dowling discussed the $4.3 million bribe and that bribe showed up in Randazzo's bank account on January 2nd. 
Houston acknowledges that he encouraged Randazgo to apply for the PUCO job, and he got that appointment about two weeks after taking the bribe. First Energy paid the money to an entity called the Sustainability Funding Alliance of Ohio, which Randazzo solely owned. Randazzo, on his financial disclosure forms, said, you know, disclosed income from the entity, but not from First Energy. Houston told Jake he had never heard of that fund before. And in later texts between Jones and Dowling, <clears throat> when they fretted about how a news story disclosed a relationship between First Energy and SFAO, they said that Houston and DeWine had to perform battlefield triage to save Randazzo's appointment. But Houston says he doesn't remember being part of such a thing. Now, he also, yeah. we did talk to Houston, I think, on Thursday, the first day marijuana was legal. And I wonder if he was partaking because <laughs> this makes no sense whatsoever. This is the biggest scandal in the history of Ohio government. He's had plenty of time to think back over that. He had plenty of time in a much closer time constraint. When this all broke, he was much closer to that dinner. To claim I don't remember discussing any of that stuff, that doesn't in any way pass the sniff test. Why would you not be straightforward about that? I don't know. I mean, he he also said he doesn't remember having a, a long conversation with the Senate president about extending the terms of the nuclear bailout in HB6, which is another detail that was mentioned in the text messages. But then he, after talking to Jake, gave it a second thought and then sent Jake a message through a spokesperson saying, well, because he was a former House speaker, it wasn't uncommon to receive calls from legislators seeking advice but you know he still doesn't really remember that. He doesn't remember anything about it. Hmm. It was also interesting. He told Jake he hadn't read Randazzo's indictment, which was I thought really that odd. was weird. Yeah, yeah. He was like, "Why would I read the indictment of Sam <laughs> Randazzo?" As if the that indictment and and HB six scandal don't touch his life at all. <laughs> yeah, I, I I just don't understand why you wouldn't be straightforward about it. Yeah, we talked about his nomination. The governor was interested in nominating him. He was interested in serving. I didn't know he had four million in bribes. So why would I have thought anything of it? But to say I don't remember any discussion. Let's face it, man. You're sitting down with the head of First Energy, which has had a decades long stranglehold on the state house through its payments and contributions. It was the most powerful gorilla in the state house. You're sitting down with their head guy. You're not going to remember that. You're not going to be on your guard. This just doesn't pass the sniff test at all, which then you have to ask, why is he not being straightforward? I'm frankly surprised that he decided to talk to Jake about this at all, because if when he's under oath, he suddenly remembers then he's going to look like he was a liar back, you know, this this past uh, during this interview. Well, and I think the lawyers are going to say what I'm saying. They're going to say, come on, man, you haven't thought about this. You don't have any recollection in the biggest statehouse bribery scandal ever. I mean, that's going to be an ugly moment because, eh, come on, think about it. He, there's no way he hasn't been thinking a good deal on Every step of the way, his ties to First Energy, now that he knows it's the most corrupt thing to ever hit the government of this state. It's a good story by Jake, but man, does it raise some questions about John Houston. He wants to run for governor. Does he think this is going to go away? Mm. It's not. I guarantee it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Speaking of HB6, it has never been fully repealed. Amazing, because it was forged in that $60 million bribery scheme. But Ohio lawmakers, who once upon a time cared about their integrity, are just fine with keeping the corrupt law in the books. So, Laura, 
How much has the public provided in subsidies to coal plants because of this rotten, stinking, corrupt law that remains on the books? A whole lot of money, $232 million in the last three and a half years. That's paid by an additional charge on Ohioans' electric bills, all for two coal plants, one of which is in Indiana. And the total cost for Ohioans by the end of this, which is 2030, is going to be $845 million. So like I said, two Cold War era coal plants, Southeast Ohio, Southeast Indiana, three companies partially own this, and they're together the Ohio Valley Electric Company. That's American Electric Power, AES Ohio, and Duke Energy. And the reason this is not going anywhere, well, Jason Stevens, the head of the house, is like, not happening. We're not going to bring this forward anytime soon. His district benefits from this. But this was part of HB6 that has never been repealed. You know how these guys all wear little flag lapel pins? I think we should go somewhere and get a bunch of dollar sign lapel pins and make them (laughs) wear them whenever they're in the state house. Because that's all this says. This says to the public, we are for sale. We are bought and paid for. It's not about what's right. It's not about serving you. It's about how much money we get from the people who want to buy us. It is such a Mm -hmm. mark against the integrity of the entire legislature that they leave it. Jason Stevens, Matt Huffman, and everybody in there. Matt Dolan's running for Senate. You would think he would say, guys, we can't stink like this. We can't be Mm -hmm. the ones that keep a corrupt law on the books. Don't we stand for integrity? If I were running against Matt Dolan, I'd be throwing this in his face every single day. Yes, that would that would be good, but they're not. They're just talking about how Trumpy they can be, right? The thing is, these subsidies existed before HB six. It was narrow reforms. It was in rulings from the PUCO, and we know who was in charge of the PUCO. By the way, they're supposed to be sticking up for Ohioans, but HB six guaranteed those payments and forced. All customers, including First Energy customers that have no interest in these plants at all, to chip in. And that's how they got the support of all the other energy companies to pass HB6 because it wasn't just a giant bribe for First Energy. And, I mean, these these coal plants have never really been profitable. I, it's like, why are, why are we subsidizing this? This is bad for the environment. It's bad for our pocketbooks. The only people it's good for are the politicians getting paid off here. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think the fix is still in, quite honestly. We, you know, we can't get rid of HB6 until we repeal these bailouts. I'm sorry. I agree. Somebody's still yes, paying somebody something. Yeah. We need to reform the PUCO so that it actually represents us. Right. We need to throw out all these bums and start over. Our readers clearly believe that. We should look into these dollar sign lapel pins. It would make much more sense for our lawmakers than the flags because they don't really represent They wouldn't be able to wear them with orange jumpsuits. (laughs) All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We talked last week about how COVID is on the rise as Christmas approaches, but should we be more worried about a rise in respiratory illnesses in China? It's causing worldwide concern. And it is how COVID started, after all. Lisa, health reporter Gretchen Crowen looked into this. What did she find? Yeah, she found that actually what's happening in China is they're experiencing an outbreak of several respiratory diseases at the same time. RSV, pneumonia cases are all up across the country, COVID, flu, and adenovirus. But repeated lab tests across the world and the World Health Organization investigation found that there is not a novel virus circulating. It's just the common diseases that you see this time of year. But because, you know, China was 
a zero, you know, COVID tolerance and, and complete lockdown, people's immunity systems may be a little bit uh, compromised. But there are clusters of RSV and pneumonia cases seen here in Ohio and across the nation. In Ohio, the Warren County Health Department issued an alert just after Thanksgiving on an unusual number of pediatric pneumonia cases, but they say there's zero evidence of connection to other outbreaks in Ohio, the United States, and the world. They're not seeing any new germs. These are known germs that have prevention measures and vaccines to to, uh, battle, but that didn't stop people from getting excited about it and saying maybe the wrong thing. Taiwan has advised their elderly babies and immune compromised people not to go to China at all. U.S. Senators J.D. Vance, Marco Rubio, Rick Scott, Tommy Tuberville, and Mike Braun wrote a letter saying that they're seeking a travel ban between the U.S. and China until we know more about this new illness, quote unquote. And Vance said there's a long history of lying about public health crises in China. And he says that who is has slavish deference to Chinese authorities. So they're trying to make political hay out of this. Well, the Chinese did it to themselves. They never come clean about COVID. That's where it started. We still don't know how, and they've been dishonest about it from the beginning. But it does sound like that by now, scientists would have seen the virus. It would have spread by now. This has right. been out there for a few months. And so if they're saying there is nothing new here, it's just the same old stuff, then that's believable. It does seem like COVID is everywhere. I heard so many people over the weekend that have it. It seems like it's just exploding again. Just as we get together for the holidays, glad I got the vaccine. You are listening to Today in Ohio. All right, this is the outrage story of the weekend. How is it fair that Cleveland has unilaterally decided five major developments will not pay their share of countywide taxes for metro parks, health, human services, and the port? Feels like a recent decision by city council is upending the whole principle of property taxes. Layla, what did they do? What's the reaction? It's it's not fair, frankly, and it's not really the way this particular economic development tool is supposed to work. The concept here is called tax increment financing, a TIF. When a TIF has been approved for a certain development project, it means that the non-school portion of any increased property tax collection that comes from that property's higher value on account of that development gets routed back to the development itself, typically to pay down debt on the project. The term of those agreements is you know, usually 30 years. After that, the taxes go back to all the normal public uses that voters approved, including health and human services, libraries, Cleveland Metro Parks, things like that. Generally, this is an accepted practice because although those entities don't get the benefit of the additional taxes for a period of time, it's ostensibly better for everyone in the long run because that development might not have happened at all without that incentive. And on the back end, it means that those agencies will get an even bigger boost from the higher property values. And quite likely, that economic development project would have spurred others in the 30-year period, which also would boost taxes. So it's all about kind of playing the long game here. But what the city is planning to do is an abomination of that, basically. City Council just voted to take five TIFs that are set to expire soon and extend them for another 30 years. But of course, that money isn't needed to support the underlying development projects because those were already completed. 
So instead, the city plans on diverting those tax dollars to, I don't know, just about anything they want to do in the city limits. And this is all made possible by the Ohio legislature, which this year granted Ohio cities a short one-time window to double the timeline of the TIFs and use the future TIF proceeds beyond the boundaries of the property with the TIF. The money can be used anywhere in the city for a bunch of public infrastructure projects, but also for improvements on private property. Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb's team said that they don't intend to use the money on private property initially, but they could, they could use it for that down the line. And meanwhile, who won't be getting that money? Over the 30-year life of these TIF extensions, the Metro Parks will lose out on $12 million. The library will lose $32 million. Tri-C will lose $20 million, and Cuyahoga County's health and human services levies, which support so many important safety net programs, they're going to miss out on $38 million. And Cleveland isn't alone in pursuing this option. Beachwood, Orange Village, North Olmstead, Shaker Heights, and Strongsville are either doing the same or they're considering it. I, I hope there's a lawsuit about this because I feel cheated, right? I voted for taxes to pay for all this stuff, figuring everybody pays their fair share, and now not. Cleveland's not paying its fair share. Think about it. The Metro Parks runs the lakefront parks for Cleveland. They spend considerable amounts of money in Cleveland, and Cleveland's sticking it to them, saying, yeah, we're not going to pay our fair share. The, the Health and Human Services levy? The per- gigantic predominant amount of that is spent on Cleveland residents. And now Cleveland says, too bad, we're not paying our share. I, I just cannot believe this is allowed. I was trying to figure out what the motivation was by the legislature because we know they hate cities. And yeah. you just wonder, are they trying to build animosity in urban areas? Because I can't imagine suburbs aren't going to get upset. People are going to vote down taxes. There's a health and human services levy coming up next year. And if there's any opposition to it, this is going to be part of the argument. Well, not everybody's paying their fair share. Beachwood's not paying its share. Shaker's not paying its share. Cleveland is not paying millions of dollars. Why should I vote for this if they're not paying their fair share? I think probably the motivation has, on the state level has more to do with doing for developers than it does with any kind of like long-term diabolical plot against you know turning turning people against their cities just because that's too that's too that takes too much <laughs> forethought and planning to have that kind of plot but you know Bibb's team is trying to pitch this idea as you know it's still playing the long game here you know just hang with us we're you know 30 years from now you'll see all the payout they're saying that the, the TIF extensions will seed his broader plan to use what's known as a uh, a TIF overlay district across downtown and and that, you know, capturing those property taxes will help the entire city and, you know, build out the infrastructure and support the big plans for the lakefront. So they're kind of framing it as taking a small slice of from the countywide coffers to hopefully increase the pot for everyone. That's fallacy, though. That was the argument they used for the TIF. They said... We're going to create TIFs to get development done so that in 30 years, all taxpayers gain from those taxes. That was the whole pitch. And now mm-hmm. they're taking it away and saying it again. This is like the con man's game. This is just a, to say, I can't believe they're using that argument because that was what they used before. It's a lie. The taxpayers are never going to see the benefit of this. They'll just extend it again. This shouldn't happen. And really, 
all the taxpayers have a case to make here that they're getting robbed. If if this is happening, they're they're not getting the equal amount of money from the vote they made. When we vote for taxes, everybody's supposed to pay. Laura, did you, were you jumping in? Yeah, I did. I wanted to say, I mean, we're focusing on Cleveland here. That's the biggest piece of the pie, right? But something like Beachwood to me is even more atrocious because that city does not need help with money. Like, I feel like they are rolling in it and they're taking it away from the very neediest county agencies because they can, because the state legislature said, sure, go ahead. Not because they need to. Yeah, why should That's Beachwood pay for poor people? Because there's no poor people living in Beachwood. Look, we've done so many stories about how cockeyed Beachwood government is. And the people in Beachwood keep voting for these folks and they keep doing these kind of atrocious things. I was surprised to hear Shaker Heights is doing it. You like to think of them as an enlightened city, but everybody's grabbing theirs. I mean, it's just everybody mm-hmm. is trying to grab theirs with no care about the public good. But the public faith was in the vote. When you vote for these taxes, you have a belief that everyone is contributing to these noble causes, and it's not happening, and Cleveland is leading the charge. It's abysmal. It's really, it's an outrage story. Courtney did a great job putting it together. I think a lot of people understood it. I think part of the plot here is tips are so confusing that they figure there won't Mm -hmm. be outrage because nobody understands them. Courtney made it understandable. Yeah, she did. You say tip and people's eyes just, they glaze over, right? Right. I mean, you know, part of your question, your original question, Chris, was ha- what are people saying about this? And, and it, you know, it's really hard to get the agencies that this affects to, to speak out about it because they are so kind of politically tied up and they're the, you know, they're uh, the welfare of their agency is uh, depends on on politics here. And so they they were very measured in their public comments about this. And a lot of them said they believe in the city's long term vision and you know, basically a rising tide will raise all ships, kind of that attitude. But County Councilman Dale Miller, God bless him. He was so outspoken about this. He said he has a real problem with what the city's doing here and that it would especially hurt the health and human services levy dollars that so many people depend on. Well, and like you said, in public comments, they're being measured. Privately, nobody's being measured. I think there's a lot of outrage at what Cleveland's doing. Cleveland's basically declaring war on the suburbs. This is ugly, and I don't think it's over. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We've asked this question multiple times on this podcast, and always the answer is the same. This time, the answer doesn't seem credible. Laura, is the Lake Erie wind turbine project really and most sincerely dead? I think so. I wanted to write this obit of of LEADCO, but there is no coroner's report to play out that uh, analogy because the Lake Erie Wind, sorry, Lake Erie Energy Development Corp, that's LEADCO. They say that they've temporarily halted the Icebreaker Wind Project, but they still want to figure out some way to make this happen. I mean, we have been talking about this for two decades. Like, if it's going to happen, it's going to be far off in the future because. There's no momentum. There's no developer. There's no money at all for this. They lost $37 million of $50 million from the federal government because they took too long because of all of these challenges from the bird lovers and a lawsuit funded in part by a coal company. And because when they got their permit, it said it had to be feathered at night, which meant, you know, 12 hours a day, they wouldn't be able to run the wind turbines. And by the time they got that taken care of and they got that part repealed, there's just 
I mean, people pulled out because it wasn't going anywhere right now. So Will Friedman, he's the head of the port. He said, given the set of circumstances, we don't have a way to push things forward unless something changes. And I don't think, given the amount of opposition, that the changes are going to happen anytime soon. I I think this is a symptom of the Cleveland disease. This was a big idea. We talk all the time that we don't have enough big ideas anymore in this town. This is a big idea that, what is it, 20 years in the making now? It goes way back. And we failed. We, we could not deliver it. There will be turbines in the Great Lakes somewhere. The, the, the green energy movement is not going to go away. And Cleveland could have been a leader, but we just couldn't get it done. It's tragic for all the people that invested so much time and energy in this. I mean, Bill Mason was one of the originators of this when he was county prosecutor. That's how far back it goes. The Cleveland Mm -hmm. Foundation did everything it could to keep this going. The port did everything it could. And in the end, Cleveland fails in the big idea. Well, but then you had Puko. No, go ahead, Laura. I was just going to say, it's a, it's a, weird group of bedfellows, right? We've got the bird lovers aligned with the coal companies here and the boaters from the Marine Trades Association throwing their hat in and the Lake Erie Foundation. I mean, there was a very wide coalition of people who didn't want this to happen. And for various reasons that people were concerned about bird migration over the lake, obviously coal companies and people like maybe First Energy don't want more competition from green energy. Corrupt then you've companies. got the boaters who Cor- don't want to look at it. But you're talking two corrupt companies. First Energy- yeah and the coal company have been proven to be completely corrupt. They should not have had a voice in this. They should have been outed and tossed out, but it didn't happen. Lisa, I think you were about to talk about the, the corruption in the, in the PUCO. Well, in Sam Randazzo, when he was head mm-hmm. of PUCO, he was very much against any form of renewable energy, and we lost those renewable subsidies under House Bill 6. And he was bought right. and paid and, for by First Energy, which doesn't want green energy. It, that, that's right. what's so sad about this. The evil forces overcame the forces of good, and Cleveland's big idea dies because of that. Because of the yeah, filth of Sam Randazzo, because of First Energy being corrupt beyond all measure. It's just shocking that that worked. It shouldn't have worked. The thing is, what they were talking about, what they wanted to build was this $126 million, 20-megawatt project, six turbines, eight miles north of Cleveland, with a 12-mile-long submerged cable that would transmit the electricity to Cleveland Public Power's onshore Lake Road substation. The thing is, people were really afraid that those six wind turbines in a demonstration project would end up being this giant wind farm in Lake Erie, and that that wouldn't be a separate fight. That, that this would just like lead one to the other. And they were concerned about what happens when the wind turbines outlive their life expectancy. Are we going to have these ugly hulks like, you know, Eric do- oil derricks in the middle of the lake? And I get why people, it, it's a totally new idea for them. And I get why people were just unsure about it. But you're right. Corruption should have zero, zero say in what we decide to do as a state. And I don't feel like this ended up getting talked about reliably. It just was a whole bunch of mudslinging. I mean, yes, you're right. Eventually, there's going to be wind turbines in the Great Lakes. Where are cottages in Lake Huron in Canada? There's just dozens and dozens of turbines on land near 
Lake Huron. They're all in farmland. But this hasn't happened yet. That's why this was going to be a demonstration project. We talked at the top of the podcast that the coal subsidies that were forged in corruption remain. This died Mm -hmm. because of that same corruption. The state legislature, the governor, they all let this die because government is bought and paid for in this state. It's a shameful ending to this chapter. And I feel bad for the people that invested so much time and effort into what could have been a visionary green energy idea. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Last week, we talked about a national report that gave Ohio and Cleveland poor grades on infant mortality. But now Cuyahoga County is claiming a big victory for 2022 for infant deaths. Although what the county says is good news, read to me like terrible news. The biggest problem we face with infant mortality got worse, not better. Lisa, can you weave all this together and make sense of it? Well, you're going to have to follow along because there is, there's a mix of good news and bad news. This is the Cuyahoga County Child Fatality Review Board's annual report for last year on death rates and causes of death for Ohioans under 18 years old. So last year, there were 152 deaths. That was tied with 2020 for the lowest rate since 2013, although not adjusted for declining county population. This is Cuyahoga we're talking about. But the numbers are up statewide. Now, when we look at infant mortality, babies that don't make their first year of life, there were 7.2 deaths per thousand live births. That's down for the third consecutive year and decreasing since 2013. So last year, uh, we had 91 deaths. 2013, it was 133 deaths. Um, But although less than one third of the county population is black, three times more black babies died than white babies. And that disparity continues to grow. Um, Cuyahoga County, um, yeah, these numbers kind of jump back and forth. (laughs) Well, So I'll stop there. Yeah, I mean, it's good news that overall it went down. But for a decade or more now, we've talked about the disparity between white and black. And and we've invested huge amounts of energy and thought in trying to fix that. And it got worse. It's like, how is it getting worse? And I just thought it was odd for the county to send out this triumphant press release and then three, four paragraphs in and say, oh, yeah, but, you know, with black infants, it got worse, which is the big crisis. The crisis is with black infants. Yeah. And uh, uh, well, but. Cuyahoga County's rate is actually lower than Ohio. So it's not just a Cuyahoga County problem, but there were some bright spots here. You know, um, let me talk about ages 10 to 17 real quick, because there were 35 deaths in that age group, second highest in 10 years, almost half of them were gunshot wounds. The other was like other medical causes and homicide deaths are also the highest in 10 years. But on the brighter side, there were fewer drownings and suicides than 2021. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We got a little bit long. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you for listening. We got more news to talk about tomorrow that we didn't get to today. So come on back.